let's turn to Malachi chapter 2 this morning. We've been working our way through the book of Malachi this summer uh, in our series, First Things First, and uh, just listening to the Lord as he speaks to us about keeping uh, him first in our lives and the spiritual things first in our lives in different areas. And today he's going to talk about relationships and what it looks like to be faithful to the Lord in our relationships. Um, And so we're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16 this morning as we walk through this text together. So, um, you know, associations are a powerful influence on how we think and how we view the world. Oftentimes, uh, the way we feel about something or the way we treat someone is deeply influenced by what we associate with them, right? So, like, for example, we automatically have an animosity towards Cubs fans just because they're with that team. Like, it doesn't matter. Nothing else is necessary. There's just an association there that happens. I remember when Courtney and I were having kids and we started trying to pick out baby names, there were certain names that we were like, no, I, I, I taught a kid like that with that name. We're not, no, I can't have that in our house. There's an association there that's just not going to work, right? Um, or a couple weeks ago, we were on vacation and we were driving across the country and like every time somebody would cut me off in traffic, I'd be like, all right, Ohio. Okay, Florida. Here we go again, right? Like, and that driver right there automatically represented all of the bad drivers from that state, no matter what state it was, um, and there was an association that happened. This happens to us all the time, and this is the way we think about when we see people, we see the world, right? It can also go the other direction, though, right? When we have something in common with someone, like we, we came from the same alma mater, or we have some shared life experience, or um, we have a mutual friend, that automatically kind of creates a connection there, that association draws us closer to that person, and we have something of a relationship that starts, right? And so it can go either way. We can either dislike or mistreat someone or something because of something they're associated with, or it can pull us closer to them. And in the church, in Christianity today, it should be the latter, right? We all have a shared faith in the one Jesus Christ. We automatically have in common an association with him and who he's called us to himself and called us to be. And that should create in us a bond and create relationships in the family of God that reflect his love and his grace for us. Unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't happen. Right? Sometimes we get sideways in our relationships, even with other believers. And when that happens, we need to look at some heart things in ourselves that Malachi is going to address today. Okay? So the main idea this morning is faithfulness towards others is rooted in faithfulness towards God. Faithfulness in my relationship with other people, especially other believers, is actually tied back to and rooted in my faithfulness towards God and my relationship with him. And Malachi is going to show us that throughout this text here in chapter 2 this morning. So let's look at verse 10 as we dive in. He says this, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So point number one is this, to be faithful in my relationships, I must love God for his faithfulness. To be faithful in my relationships with other people, especially other believers, it first comes back to, do I love God for his faithfulness to me? He starts off with this two questions. He says, do we not all have one father and has not one God created us? So he's posing two parallel questions here with the same idea. He's reminding them of who they are. 
right? Like, remember, he's talking to Israel here. He's like, you are Israel. You are God's chosen people. He's called you to himself. He's created you into this nation. You all have the same God. You have the same Father in him. You are united in your faith of this ever-faithful God. And that should do something to your relationships, right? They were all equally his children, full of value, full of worth, full of importance, simply because they're part of God's family. And therefore, they should equally be faithful to one another as God has been faithful to them. That's Malachi's point. And this underlying truth, this identity that he speaks to, still applies to us today. Back then, Israel was God's chosen people. Today, all Christians, the church, is God's chosen people. He's called us to himself. He's created us into a family together, the same as Israel. And it all comes back to our shared faith in Christ and in the gospel. See, we need to make sure that we never forget where we started. Every single one of us started in the same position. Rebellious against the God of the universe, disobeying his word, deserving of his wrath and his punishment. We were sinners in the worst kind of way. And then out of his love and his grace, instead of seeing the wrath that we deserved, he sent his son to come and to live a perfect and sinless life and then to go to the cross and die a sinner's death. To die our death. The one that we deserve for our sin, Christ said, I'll take that. And he went and he stood in our place as a substitute and he took all the wrath and the punishment and the death that we deserved and he died. He went to the grave and three days later he rose back to life to prove that he was God to conquer sin and death, and to offer all of us worthless sinners a place in his family. That if we'll turn from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, that we will be loved and accepted by the gracious God of the universe, and he brings us in as all equal sons and daughters of God. That's what Malachi is reminding the people of, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That we all come with the same stuff. And he forgives us and he cleanses us and he brings us in. And all who put their faith in Jesus are children of God. We're siblings. And so he says you need to love and be faithful to one another. He goes on, he says, if this is true, if we're all part of the family, why then are we faithless? To one another. That word's going to show up over and over again in this text, faithless. That's the key idea that he's driving home here. He says, why are we faithless? Why do we treat one another the way that we do? Why do we use one another? Why do we lie and deceive one another? Why do we attack and demean one another? Why do we betray one another? Why are we sinning against one another instead of loving one another, being faithless. He says, by doing this, we are profaning the covenant, disregarding the shared faith that we have in God, in Christ, and in his faithfulness to us, his children, acting as if our shared identity doesn't count for anything, that you're just like anybody else in this world, and it doesn't mean anything special or extra in the family of God. Why, he says, do we do this? And the answer, friends, is simple. 
because we love ourselves more than we love the Lord. That too often our flesh creeps back in and that heart inside of us, that sinful, deceitful heart, loves ourselves more than we love God and his family. We care more about what we want than what he wants. And we take his love and we take his faithfulness for granted instead of extending it to the rest of the family. We accept it, we take it, but then we don't give it to others. In the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 4, he talks about the same issue, verse 20. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For who, do, who does, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, every believer is a child of God, his own son and his own daughter, and we cannot love God and hate his kids. It doesn't work that way. We can't be faithless to our brothers and sisters in Christ and yet be faithful to the Lord. You know, as a, as a parent, it, it breaks your heart when you see one of your kids mistreated, right? When you see them hurt or taken advantage of in some way. But you know what's even worse? When the perpetrator is one of your other kids. You're like, come on, you're supposed to love each other. Your siblings. Stop it! Right? I mean, that's only our house. I don't know. I, like, it's like, come on! That's exactly how God feels when his kids are faithless to one another. And it shows that we take his love and his faithfulness towards us for granted by not extending it to others. So the first issue that he touches on here is that faithfulness to others starts with living in the faithfulness of God and in faithfulness to God. It starts with me receiving the faithfulness of God in my life as a follower of Christ and then also responding in faithfulness to the Lord by loving those that he loves. The vertical relationship between me and God impacts the horizontal relationship between me and everyone else. So first he addresses just faithlessness in general among the people. And then he goes to a more specific example. Look at verse 11. He says, Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Point number two is this. To be faithful in finding my mate, I must trust God in his faithfulness. To be faithful in finding my mate, I must trust God in his faithfulness. So look what he says here. He says, Judah has been faithless. There's that word again, right? Faithless. Judah, the, the nation as a whole, has been faithless. They have committed an abomination, he says. Now, abomination is like a pretty important word in the Bible. It's, it doesn't get used a whole lot. And it means like one of the most severe sins, oftentimes leading to death. 
So this is a very serious issue to hear that he's bringing up. He says, they have committed an abomination. They have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. They have profaned the worship of God. They have disregarded him as worthless, that his worship is unimportant. And so what they're doing here is a direct affront to God and to who he is and to his glory. And that is why it's so severe right here. He says, this is why God is not receiving your worship. He says, because you married the daughter of a foreign God. That's the offense. Now, what's happening here historically is that the Israelites, they had started to marry non-Israelite women from other nations who worshipped other gods. And that was a practice that was very specifically and strictly forbidden by God in the law of Moses that he gave to the people. But we need to understand why, right? He doesn't forbid this for ethnic reasons or for racial reasons. Sometimes people get this twisted, and they use this to, to talk against like interracial marriage in our day. That is not what the Bible is saying. Nowhere in the Bible does it speak against interracial marriage. In fact, there's actually some great examples of it in the Bible. Think about like Boaz and Ruth. Boaz was an Israelite, Ruth was a Moabite, and he's praised for marrying her because they shared the same faith. That's what's at issue here. The problem here is not an issue of race. The problem is an issue of worship. God said not to marry people of other faiths because it would turn the Israelites away from worshiping the one and only true God. That was his concern. And so these mates that they were taking from other nations would be a hindrance to their faithfulness to the Lord. It would lead them to be faithless towards God in their worship. And they had profaned the worship of God by entering into these interfaith marriages. That's the problem. Because it divided their hearts. And it, it divided their homes. And it stole worship away from the one true God. The faithful one. And so in response to this, Malachi says, may the Lord cut off any descendants of the man who does this. See, sometimes I think we, we think that God is, is too nice or too weak. You need to understand that God is holy and he will not tolerate a divided heart. He will not tolerate forfeiting his worship to any other God in your life or in your home. And so he says here, anyone who seeks to live like that, to have one foot on this side and one foot on this side and live in two different worlds of worship, he says, that's not going to happen. That will not happen in my people. I will remove them and I will cut off the family line because they're leading their children into a family of false faith. You see, the real issue here is not just the fact that they were marrying so-and-so. It's that they didn't trust God's faithfulness in their lives. They didn't trust his plan for their family, for their lives, for their nation. So they decided, you know what, we, we're, we got a better solution. We're going to go our own way. We're going to do it our way. doesn't matter what God says. We know better. And they didn't believe. They didn't trust in the faithfulness of God. And so they were faithless in how they were pursuing and selecting their mates. So this is a really specific example, obviously, here in Scripture. 
So how does this apply to us today in 2023 as the church? Well, I think it most aptly applies to a question that I've heard many times throughout my years in pastoral ministry, which is, is it okay to date an unbeliever? I know some of you are way past the dating stage. Some of you are right in the middle of it. Some of you are like have kids that are coming up on it. So like, let's just take all of this together for a moment, okay? Is it okay to date an unbeliever? Well, let's let think about that through a biblical lens for a moment this morning. Right? We always want to take it back to what does the Bible say about these issues in our culture? What is, what is the purpose of dating for a Christian? See, dating in our culture is about entertainment. It's about socializing. Sometimes it's even for sport or for sexual expression. Like, there's a whole lot of reasons that people date in culture. But for us as believers, for the Christian, the purpose of dating is solely to find someone to marry. That's the reason that we would do that. And so if that's the case, by that nature of that purpose, the criteria for who we choose to date must match the criteria of those who we would be willing to marry. And one of those criteria that we find in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul is writing here to the church. He says, do not be unequally yoked or married, that's another word for married, with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? He says, don't marry someone of a different faith or no faith because you don't have anything in common. (laughs) Not the things that matter. You're opposites when it comes to how you understand God and faith, and that's not going to work in your marriage. And so if we shouldn't date someone that we wouldn't marry, that means we shouldn't date unbelievers Because God says, don't marry someone who's a different faith. And I've, throughout the years, I've I've had conversations over and over again with Christians who want to debate this question and try to justify their dating choices. And I'll give you some of the excuses or reasons that I've heard. Number one, but I can handle it. Right? I'm strong in my faith. I'm grounded in my faith. I'm going to help them come to Jesus. Back in my day, we used to call this missionary dating, okay? Um, or flirt to convert. Like, it was like, I'm going to bring them over to the right side. Um, and let me just tell you, like, that's, the Bible, got, God says that's just, that's usually not how it works. I'm not saying it's never happened. There are some testimonies where, like, yeah, somebody brought somebody to faith, like, but it's not wise, Because the majority of the time, you're not going to bring them to Jesus. They're going to pull you away from Jesus. Second reason or excuse is, well, it's just just not that big of a deal, right? So what? So we have, we go to different churches. We believe slightly different things about God. We have, you know, different ways that we worship. Why does it matter? Why is it such a big deal? When you find the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with, What you two together believe about God is the most important thing about your relationship. It's not if you're attracted to one another. It's not how many kids you want. It's not what your five-year plan is. The most important thing about your relationship is what do you believe about God? Because that colors everything else. 
Every decision, every purpose, every thought, every action, every goal of your marriage is founded on what do I know and believe to be true about the Lord. And so if you don't share that in common, if you're not one in how you worship God and believe about God, how can you be one in anything else? It absolutely matters. Another reason or excuse would be, but I, I can't find someone like that. <laughs> I've looked. Like, all the good Christians are taken or crazy. And so, like, I'm just out of options. Like, all i got left is the non-believers, and there's just nobody else out there. Friends, I, I know it might feel like that in the moment, but it, it's simply not true. To believe that is to believe that God is not faithful. And that God will not provide the person that he has for you in the time that he has them for you. I know that's a painful statement for some who've been waiting for a while. And you might have to wait. Some of you might have to wait even longer. But I'm just telling you, the answer is not disobey God's word and go for a non-believer. Wait on the faithfulness of God. The last one Maybe the most common is, but we're in love. We love each other. Isn't that enough? No. It's not. Hollywood says it is, but it is not. Because that feeling, those emotions that you're feeling, they're real. And I'm not going to discount that. You have an emotional connection of love with that person. I get that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is not a strong enough foundation to build a marriage on. Because emotions come and go with circumstances. What you need is a strong, sturdy foundation of truth that only comes from a shared faith in the one true God. That's what's going to make you stable and, and, and give you the foundation you need to build a lifelong relationship. God wants you to have a relationship that will grow your faith, not erode your faith. That's the whole point here, right? And that's not going to happen if you marry someone who doesn't believe in the faithfulness of God in your life and in their life. And so the bottom line is this, friends. When you ignore God's wisdom in this area and you follow your heart or you follow your own desires— what you're really saying is, I don't trust you, God. I don't trust your word is true, that this is what is best. I don't trust your plan is perfect and that you will provide what I need when I need it. I don't trust that in your goodness in my life that you have what is best for me. I don't trust your sovereignty to lead me to your perfect will for my life and for my relationships. I don't trust God. And so I'm faithless towards him. Malachi says, don't do that. Don't bow to the world. Don't bow to your desires. Don't be faithless to the one who has been so faithful to you. Wait on the Lord. 
faithfulness to God means faithfully following his word in my relationships. Faithfulness to God means faithfully following his word, his wisdom. When he says this or doesn't say, or says do this or don't do this, it's being faithful to what he says. So that's the second example of faithlessness that Malachi hits on. Then there's a third example. Look at verse 13. He says, this, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says, The Lord of God, the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The third point this morning is to be faithful to my spouse, I must die to myself in light of God's faithfulness. To be faithful to my spouse in marriage, I must die to myself in light of God's faithfulness. So he starts off, he says, and another thing. He's like, by the way, you, you want to know why God has rejected your worship? <laughs> you want to, I mean, let me give you another reason. Because you have been faithless to your wife. You have not loved her, but divorced her. Now, we're going to step into now a very touchy subject in the church and in the world and that is divorce. And I can look around the room, and I know a lot of your stories, I know a lot of your families have been impacted by it, either you personally or someone close to you or your parents. I'm in that camp. And so I know what we're about to touch on here is going to be a little sensitive. But I believe that God has a word for us this morning. And so I want us to zoom out for a second and take a biblical look at marriage and divorce, and what does he say, and then understand it in the context of what Malachi says to us here. First thing you need to understand is God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman worshiping him together for a lifetime. One man and one woman worshiping him together as one flesh for a lifetime. That's God's plan. That's his design for marriage. But, just like everything else in creation, marriage was broken by sin. And a lot of people and a lot of families have been impacted by that brokenness, by divorce, again, including myself. And so when we get down to verse 16, first you need to understand that it's a very hard verse to translate. The Hebrew, the original language here, it's kind of jumbled in verse 16. And so it's been hard. So you'll, like, if you read like five different, six different Bible translations, they'll all be different on how they translate this verse because it's just kind of a difficult one to translate. Which has led to many poor and unfortunate translations in the past that have been often quoted and repeated and taught in churches that sounded something like this. God hates divorce. How many of you ever heard that before in church? That comes from verse 16. And that's not what it says. Please hear me this morning. 
That's not what this verse says. Okay? Here is what we're looking at. The first problem with that translation, with that understanding, and all the subsequent teaching that has come from it, is that it has, it has shamed and ostracized people who have experienced divorce as if they have no place with God or no place in the church. And that idea goes directly against everything that the gospel stands for. The gospel says, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've experienced, that God loves you, and he has a place for you, and that you can be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that myopic teaching has broken a lot of people in the church. Secondly, the problem with that translation is it goes against the rest of Scripture in this, okay? Now let's just kind of nuance this here for a second. It is true that God says that divorce is never part of his plan for marriage, right? God, when he designed marriage, when he started it with Adam and Eve, divorce was never part of the plan. It's not in his will for people when they get married. And in most circumstances, he would tell us, stay married. Even in really hard, ugly situations where you have to do some major lifting of forgiveness, he would still say, stay, work it out, be married. But there are two instances in Scripture where God gives an allowance for divorce. He doesn't encourage it, but he does allow it in these two instances. Let me give you those real quick. Matthew 19, 7 through 9 is the first one. They're talking to Jesus, and they said, They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So the Pharisees are asking Jesus, like, why, did, why have we allowed divorce if it's such a problem? And here's what Jesus said. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So because you had hard, sinful hearts, he allowed it. But from the beginning, it was not so. From God's plan, from creation, this was not the way it was supposed to be. As I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there Jesus gives the first exception, the first allowance for divorce, is if there is adultery, if there's sexual infidelity in the marriage, the one who was sinned against is allowed a divorce in that situation. Still not encouraged, but allowed, if necessary. The second allowance comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. Paul's writing here, and he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So the first thing Paul's saying is like, listen, if somehow you got into a marriage situation where one's a believer and one's not, maybe you were both unbelievers when you got married and somebody got saved and the other one hasn't, or maybe you didn't know and so you married an unbeliever, whatever the thing is, if the unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage, then stay. 
Because by you being a light of the gospel in that house, your spouse who's unsaved might get saved. And your kids get to see a picture of the gospel and Jesus and loving someone, and they might come to Christ. Like, so if, if they want to stay in it, stay in it. And use it as an opportunity to witness for Jesus. But then he goes on and he says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband? How do you? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So the second section is if the unbelieving partner decides they want a divorce, they decide to leave. Then they say, "Okay, you can let them go," and you're not held to that marriage. Those are the only two instances where the Bible allows for marriage. I'm sorry, for marriage for divorce. But even in those, God doesn't necessarily encourage it. And we have seen multiple examples, even in our own church, where one of these have happened and someone has had a, an opportunity for divorce. They've given, had an allowance for it and they've chosen to stay and they've chosen to forgive and they've chosen to work through it and God has blessed that marriage and has restored what was broken. He can do it and he will do it. But there are times where it's necessary. And so God gives these two allowances in those instances. So how does that relate to Malachi? What Malachi is referring here to, if you look at the language, he's talking specifically about a man or a spouse who is unfaithful to their partner. Not that their partner has been unfaithful to them, but they have been unfaithful in this sense. He says he does not love her. This could mean adultery has happened, or it could just mean that in his state of his heart, he just no longer is choosing to love her. He's decided inside he wants someone else. He wants something else. He wants to be free of the marriage, and he doesn't love her anymore. Today in our culture, we would, call, we would say they, they just fell out of love with one another, right? And we would call this a no-fault divorce, that's the scenario that Malachi is describing in this particular instance. And that type of divorce is what God is condemning and rejecting here. The kind that would say, I just don't really want to do this anymore. The kind that would be a sinful, fleshly feeding of my own desires to go and to look for something better and to look for someone else, and I'm just done with this relationship without a biblical grounds for it. That's the kind of divorce that God is rejecting here. Not divorce in every situation. And so because of that, he then lists out in the text here three reasons why divorce, in this instance, is faithlessness to God. Three things. Number one, first he says, because he was a witness to your marriage covenant. In other words, his name is on it, right? God was there. He vouched for it. He ratified it. He's the one who, who, who ordained it. And so his faithfulness, his character, his name is on the line in your marriage. And so you aren't just breaking a covenant with your spouse when you're divorced. You're actually breaking a covenant with God. And so there's a faithfulness to God issue here, not just a faithfulness to the other person. The second reason that divorce is faithlessness to God, is that he made you one with a portion of his spirit. 
See, there are actually three people in your marriage. Husband, wife, and the Lord. That he's part of the union. He's part of what happened when you came together under the marriage covenant. And so ending that is not just your choice. God has a say in it as well. Because he's part of it in his spirit. Mark 10, 7 through 9 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage, joining two people together in marriage, is God's work. He does it with a portion of his spirit, Malachi says. And so he, only he can say when it should be undone. The third reason my divorce is faithlessness to God is that he seeks godly offspring. Now this is, might be a new one for some of you. He says marriage here, it serves a greater purpose than simply our pleasure or our companionship or our desires and plans. That marriage actually, it's supposed to serve God's purposes in our lives and in the world. One of which is to grow his family and grow his kingdom through godly offspring. That a husband and wife are supposed to come together and have children and then raise and disciple those children in the Lord so they can also become followers of Jesus and become part of the kingdom of God. He wants to raise up more disciples through families. This was one of the very first commands that he gives to Adam and Eve, right? He creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, puts them together as a couple, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to the glory of God. Not just make babies, but have babies and then train them up to follow the Lord. That's part of the process here. Unfortunately, like again, like everything else, sin broke childbearing. And so unfortunately, many couples today aren't able to have children for various reasons. But even in those instances, Christian marriages can still glorify God with godly offspring. Through fostering, through adoption, through just investing and in discipling other children in the church family. There's still a role here for you to be creating godly offspring in the family of God. And so when we take those three reasons and we put them together, we see that divorce is not just faithlessness to our spouse, it's faithlessness to our God. Because he's in and around and a part of every aspect of marriage. And he blesses us with the gift of marriage for our good, but it's not primarily about us. That's where we get it twisted. And our culture is constantly feeding us this lie that marriage is about making yourself happy. And it's not. Marriage is about God and his glory and his name and his work and his mission. It's meant to be a picture of his love for his church and how we come underneath him as the bride. And so faithlessness to my spouse is ultimately faithlessness to God. And then he says this. He says, the man who divorces her covers his garment with violence. Right here, God is revealing the consequence of divorce. 
that although there are times where it seems like it's, a, it's, an, it's, an, it's an appealing option, right? It seems like, man, this is so bad, and this is so, like, it, it's, it's got to be better on the other side. It's got to be better if I get out of this relationship. If I move on. But friends, I'm just telling you, 99% of the time, that is a lie. Because divorce brings violence into our lives and into our hearts and into our families. It brings destruction that covers us like a garment. And ultimately, we wear the stain of it on our hearts, on our character, on our witness for the Lord. Even when we're forgiven, the pain and the stain still stay. And I'm speaking as one whose family has walked through this. And if you've been through it, you know what I'm talking about. There's a part of it that never leaves. And God's not threatening you with that. He's warning you, saying, don't. I love you too much. Don't go there. Ultimately, faithless, being faithless in our marriage is also faithless to the work of Christ in us. Because we are the ones who have been forgiven. We are the ones who have been saved. We are the ones who have been covered by the grace of Christ. And we are called to give that to others. To die to ourselves as Christ died on the cross for our sins. And to love and forgive and restore relationships. Even the most broken ones. Divorce lies about who we are in Christ. And it lies about God's faithfulness to us in our relationships. And so he ends with this charge. He says, guard yourself in your spirit. Check your heart. That's what he's saying. Guard against that part of you, that selfish, greedy, sinful part of you that wants to make it about you. We all have that. I've got it. He says, guard your heart against that, and don't let your flesh build a case against your spouse that then leads to bitterness and unforgiveness and breaks the relationship. Don't make your life and your marriage primarily about you. You've got to die to yourself. He says, guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Be faithful. Be faithful to the God who loves you, who saved you, who provides for you, who restores you, who gives you hope. We can be faithful to him because he has proven that he will always be faithful to us. He will never leave us nor forsake us no matter what we're walking through, no matter what has happened in the relationship, no matter what struggles there are, no matter what brokenness there is. He is there, and the greatest display of his faithfulness to us was when he died on that cross to save us from our sins. And so now we get to die to ourselves and extend that same forgiveness and love and reconciliation to others, especially our spouse. 
live for his glory and his purposes in your marriage. Faithfulness to my spouse and God means dying to myself for God. If I want to be faithful to the spouse that God has given me, I have to die to myself. And so in all of these examples, it goes back to the main idea. Faithfulness towards others is rooted in faithfulness towards God. In every relationship, in friendships, in dating, in marriages, in all of it, faithfulness towards people starts with having a heart that loves and trusts and sacrifices for the Lord. It starts with us responding to his faithfulness to us with our faithfulness towards him and towards others. And we don't just do it to check a box. We don't just do it to get the gold star from God or to prove ourselves to him. We do it because he is worthy. Because we serve and we worship a God who is worthy of all that we have to offer and has been faithful to us time and time and time again. And so we trust him, and we follow him, and we guard our hearts so that we're not faithless to the faithful one. Stand with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we believe that today. We believe that you are the faithful one even when we have to deal with really difficult texts like we did today. You've taught us, Lord, over and over again what faithfulness looks like. Through your loving and sacrificial example, God, you have, you have shown us, you have taught us, Lord, how to be faithful. And just as you are faithful to love us and be gracious to us, Lord, help us to be faithful to others. Help us to extend that your love and your grace to everyone in our lives, but especially those that you put closest to us. Lord, we believe it this morning, Lord. Great is your faithfulness. And so we put our faith in you afresh today. Let's pray all this in Christ's name.